Artificial intelligence will completely transform our world. But what is AI? Why will it affect you? And how can you and your business survive and thrive through the AI revolution? Welcome to AI and You. Here is your host, author, speaker, and futurist, Peter Scott. Welcome to episode 172, and today we'll conclude the interview with Matt Lundgren, MD. We're digging into what AI really means for medical imaging, which is an area of intense reporting and contentious claims. In fact, in my stack of news headlines, right at the top was one from the New York Times in March when they reported that radiologists in Hungary were starting to use AI to help them spot breast cancers. I think you've already gotten an idea from Matt that there's more to the picture about the impact of AI on radiology jobs than just this information, of course. There are more clinical trials to go, but Dr. Laszlo Tabar said he was won over by the technology after reviewing its performance in breast cancer screening from several vendors. The AI outlines areas on the mammograms for the human radiologist to look at, where it thinks there are possible anomalies, and the radiologist will pay extra attention to them. The technology from Chiron Medical Technologies is getting trialed in Scotland and Finland as well. Hopefully, our interview with Matt will help you put that news in the right context, which is more nuanced than jobs. Matt is the right person to help with that because he is Chief Medical Information Officer at Nuance Communications, a Microsoft company applying AI to healthcare workflows. He was previously doing research at Stanford University Medical School, where he led the Stanford Center for Artificial Intelligence in Medicine and Imaging. He has over 100 publications, including work on multimodal data fusion models for healthcare applications and new computer vision and natural language processing approaches for healthcare-specific domains. He's also a top-rated instructor on Coursera for his AI in Healthcare course. Last week, we talked about how AI might be used in imaging diagnosis workflow, studies in which it was able to see things that humans didn't, like the race of someone from their x-ray and their gender from a retinal scan, and started to get into the real value proposition of AI in medical imaging. So let's get back into the interview with Matt Lundgren. You mentioned the New England Journal of Medicine a moment ago, and I want to call out a paper that you had there three months ago, the Current and Future State of AI Interpretation of Medical Images, which is very broad title. And yes. so I read that. And there's a statement in there that says, despite some evidence that clinicians receiving AI assistance can achieve better performance than unassisted clinicians, the body of research on human AI collaboration for image interpretation offers mixed evidence regarding the value of such a collaboration. Now, if I'm a hospital administrator trying to decide whether to spend $100 million on AI for my healthcare system, I can't hang a lot of hope of return on investment on a statement like that. Although it might be unfair to ask you to get into this in a few minutes, it reminds me of a training I was giving a, a few days ago where I was talking a lot about the pros and cons of AI to a group that was looking at adopting it. And finally, the head said, are you a fan of this? And I said, it's not that simple. It depends. <laughs> it's like giving someone a chainsaw. They might cut down a tree or they might cut off their leg. You've got to use it the right way. 
But nevertheless, that's not much comfort to the hospital administrator trying to decide where to put their R&D dollars or their operational dollars. So how should they make such a decision? Yeah, you know, and this is something that I'm a techno-optimist, but I need to see evidence to make decisions. You know, hope is not a strategy. Hmm? And technology alone is not a strategy. And so, and then that's one of the reasons after developing, again, hundreds of these models, many of which worked, many of which didn't work, you know, having lots of battle scars. What we didn't spend a ton of time on at the beginning, and in retrospect, we probably should have, is thinking very critically about the human-computer interaction aspect of this. And anyone in software development would tell you how important UI, UX is, right? But that wasn't the goal at the beginning. The goal was to demonstrate performance and develop systems and innovative ways to approach data and analysis and, and really focusing on clinical outcomes and, and not thinking about that deployment. I mean, in fact, is you know, again, many there's many bodies in the field of the last mile battle, right? Of getting things into the hands of users in a way that they expect to receive the information and in a way that both accelerates their capabilities, but also reduces the risks of automation bias and other problems, right? So, you know, I always tell when I talk to new PhD students in this space, you know, what should they be spending their time on? I think there's a few areas. This is a big one. How do we deliver these capabilities into the hands of experts so that they are better? And it's not always what you think. Some people say it has to be interpretable, but there's many that have shown that, that that's not necessary in all cases. Some people say it has to be within the existing workflows, but that's not always the case either. We've seen examples of clinicians who are not medical imaging experts leveraging AI with imaging to do tasks that they care about. So there's just a lot of work that needs to be done here. And it's going to take, I think, some time to really nail down how do we truly get the human plus AI to be better. We intuitively believe that's the case. And probably in most cases it is, but we have to show it and we have to figure out what those best practices are. There's, you know, again, that's a right area. I think the other area I always tell folks is, again, like we were talking about earlier, you got to make sure that system continues to work after you deploy it. You can't just throw it out in the world, even if you've got a great UI and expect this system to work as advertised forever in a dynamic world like healthcare. So that's another area that, you know, we've done quite a bit of work on that. Now, some of the work at my lab now at Microsoft, but there's still work to be done. Mm. And so those areas, I think, will ultimately be necessary for us to really show the power of this technology. And it is such a volatile area, but it's one that you can't, as I was saying earlier, just shy away from and say, let's just wait five years, not when there are lives at stake. And if they could be saved by applying the right technology. So you have to look at it now. I read, I believe, that the European Union has approved the use of AI in primary diagnosis of medical imaging. If I got that right, what's your reaction to that? I think that, so there's a few different nuances in terms of the different, obviously, regulatory bodies and healthcare systems. I think all of them are, they're given a very difficult task, right? Because here we have all these scientists and researchers and techno-optimists, many of which are at this point clinicians, and they're saying, hey, this technology really works. But then you have this other body that says, well, you know, we're seeing difficulties in fitting this technology into existing systems that really were meant for software, traditional software, right? And yet here we have this technology that's, that's capable of learning and getting better over time. And yet we don't treat it that way from a regulatory perspective. And I think that that's an evolution that 
that they're doing the best they can with it. I don't envy that job of trying to regulate this because the stakes are incredibly high. But when you look at something like, I think the the example you're talking about, if I'm understanding the reference correctly, is really the, the system in the, at least in the UK, that for mammography, for screen mammography, they require two reads. Two humans have to look at every study. And if you look at the broad radiology field, there aren't too many examples of of a regulated space that requires two human experts to review a diagnostic image exam for every exam. And so the thought was, if we can get a system that's as good as a human expert, can we eliminate one of those humans? We're not eliminating all the humans, right? We're essentially providing an AI assistant as opposed to a second read from a human. And I think that sounds to me at face value, based on what I know of the technology and that space, that, that sounds like a great place to start. And I think that that still shows some responsibility, but then also addresses, as you mentioned, the pressures that we're all under. Because if we can't figure out a solution to address the shortages and the waits and the delays in diagnosis, we're not doing our patients any favors, if, especially if there's something here that can potentially deliver that. And the only reason we're not delivering is either because we can't get the UI right or we can't figure out how to monitor it. So it would be a shame to let all that innovation go to waste, particularly when there's lives at stake, as you've mentioned. So I think that's a responsible place to start. It mm. won't be the last, but it, it certainly would be a good one. And just to make sure that no one's confused on this point, we're not talking about a Hinton-type scenario of making half the radiologists redundant here. This is about reducing time to diagnosis. This is about helping the patients. And in a system that is everywhere, apparently overburdened. I would like to talk about your current work with Nuance, which appears to be working on voice recognition. So maybe you can satisfy the curiosity I have of what a chief medical information officer is doing in that. Yeah, it's a, <laughs> it's a question I get asked quite a bit. As you know, I, I spent about a decade in sort of the academic world, splitting my time from core research functions and, you know, running this large AI and healthcare center, which, you know, ended up growing to 300 faculty, many of which were clinicians, many of which computer scientists, all kinds of backgrounds, bringing them together to solve problems with, with everyone sort of trying to speak the same language. I think that was really important, a multidisciplinary work. And then I did a sabbatical from Stanford with Microsoft Research and when I came into that space, I started to recognize that, you know, a lot of the things that I was focused on were also of interest to researchers in, in industry as well. And on top of that, there was a lot of ability to access powerful compute, certainly leveraging the newest resources. And, and I thought this could be an interesting place to scale up some of the work that we were all driving towards in my lab and my group. So eventually made the decision that despite in really enjoying all the work I did, it did in academia, I think that taking a, a more of a product-based deployment application lens to this, I think both from my interest in seeing this technology actually be delivered to the world, but also from the perspective of, hey, I'm coming here with all this experience, particularly as a practicing clinician, how can we actually deliver this? And when Microsoft acquired Nuance, what a lot of people don't know is that, you know, Nuance actually provides the workflow reporting software for around 80 plus percent of radiologists in the U.S., meaning that 80 percent of radiologists in this country interact with a nuanced software platform in order to interpret medical imaging. It doesn't provide the actual pixels, but it provides the reporting infrastructure and, and in some cases the work list. And so there's a lot of opportunities then to say, well, how can I deliver 
the newest technologies directly into the workflow, right? That's where you ultimately have the impact. And so I was really excited. So my role day to day, and to be clear, there are several different CMIO roles within the companies. But right now, my focus is really as a horizontal leader, very much sort of like what I was doing at Stanford between the computer science department and the medical school. But here it's the core Microsoft researchers, the collaborators that we have on that front, understanding where the technology is going, what technology assets do we have? And then how do we bring that via the cloud, right, which is obviously a big part of this, into an application that can deliver value. And so it's a dream job, for sure. It's very busy. And obviously, with a lot of the developments in generative AI, there's not a lot of time for rest, because things are changing so fast. But I've never been more optimistic about being able to change healthcare in a responsible and highly impactful way. So maybe you could help me understand exactly what that looks like. It sounds that you're saying that Nuance is providing workflow solutions for radiology, which would have to do with the movement of data and metadata in a system from the time that it goes in through scan, diagnosis, and post-care. And, and then you mentioned large language models. Do they have a role in this as well because of their ability to interpret unstructured text? Yeah, so take a step back. I think that the fundamental core technology, the idea that you can turn medical speak in, you know, voice into text, that's kind of the core fundamental technology that underpins the sort of the dictation software that they've been delivering to radiology for a long time, but then also, right, to many other parts of healthcare and then even frankly outside of healthcare. And so the most visible example currently is something called DAX, the Dragon Ambient Experience. And so what they've done now that generative AI has really matured is to say, well, I can listen to a physician speak with a patient. And rather than, you know, my current workflow, which is to type the note while I'm talking to the patient and hurry up and get my documentation done so I can get on to the next visit, this would actually listen to the conversation between the physician and the patient, take the most relevant information out of that discussion and draft a note that I can then quickly review and sign, meaning that I can look at my patient in the eyes as opposed to looking at the screen. So that's kind of one example where that, and that generative AI really serves a role here because it's taking that long transcript, which may contain information that's not relevant, right? Like we might have a discussion about your son's little league or your aunt's cooking at the family picnic, that, I don't need that in the note, right? But that's in the transcript because you just listen to all that. So you need a model that's multi-purpose and performance enough to understand the context. Okay, this is a medical visit. Okay, the objective is to write a note about that visit. Well, before generative AI, that's a massive engineering effort that I think would be, at least in my opinion, something I wouldn't even try to tackle with supervised learning only. So here we have this technology that's kind of come out of nowhere that can actually deliver that that capability. So we're seeing a lot of applications there. Now, if you go back into the diagnostic workflow, there's two angles where this is starting to go. And we did talk about this a little bit in the article. But from a core fundamental perspective, if you look at all the tasks across healthcare, but certainly in radiology, there's a lot of things that we do that don't require a medical degree. Formatting notes, putting things in certain templates, referring to specific guidelines. These are not things that you need to be doing. And yet these are repetitive tasks that can potentially be accomplished by a large language model. But beyond that, we recognize that, yes, generative AI is predominantly text today, but the fundamental technology that drives generative AI is not a text-only technology. And so then we start to say, well, what does a multimodal world look like? Well, healthcare, 
is incredibly multimodal, right? And we talked about that at the beginning, how I use all these different sources of data and knowledge to do my job. Well, now we can start to say, well, we can tackle some of those parts of the system that I mentioned that would be challenging to do with supervised learning. Can I understand the relationship between the pixels and the clinical data in a way that could offload some of those responsibilities? And so we see a lot of promise and potential there. There's a lot of work to do. But I've, again, like I said, I've never been more optimistic about tackling many parts of the workflow that were considered almost unsolvable from a supervised learning approach and now taking a completely different spin on it and saying, I have this multi-purpose, incredibly powerful model. How can I use that to eliminate a lot of the burdensome administrative tasks that leads to burnout mm-hmm. and leads to the reasons why, hey, man, I went to medical school to take care of patients and not to do paperwork. Right. So is this the nail in the coffin for doctors' unreadable handwriting? <laughs> well, uh, I think the, the, it might be the way the pronunciations will be the new bad handwriting, right? We'll have to honor <laughs> physicians to enunciate <laughs> in the conversation. But no, I, I think that the, we're, we're finally maybe leaving our paper days behind us, yeah. Yay. Well, I want to close with some exploration of the optimism that you've mentioned there and see how we can peek into the future with that. And I, I guess that I've been frustrated by medical research for some time now because every day there is some announcement of some study showing something has extended lifespan 30% in mice or given them um, new recuperative powers, ability to grow limbs, all kinds of things. And it never filters down to this level. I know we're supposed to wait 10, 15 years for human studies, but I've waited longer than that for some of this stuff and I haven't seen it. So I don't think that we need to worry so much about being taken over by superintelligent AI as we do as being overrun by superintelligent mice. But again, the curve of research has ticked up in the last few years, at least in the AI arena. And so to the extent that you're willing to look forwards to what might be coming down the pipe, what's possible with that optimist hat on. What do you think we can look forward to that makes medical care better? Yeah, I love how you phrased that. I One of my, actually the reason I went to academic medicine, uh, a gentleman by the name of Sam Gambier, who was the chair of Stanford Radiology, unfortunately passed away very young. But he often said that we've cured mouse cancer about a thousand times. We still have yet to cure human cancer. And, you know, the context of that is we can show you a lot of really cool things in controlled scientific experiments and feasibility studies, but getting out of the lab into the very stochastic, chaotic world is an entirely new animal. And it it requires a dedication and a passion and a belief in what you're doing to persevere through that, right? Because it's, there's just that, the additional amount of effort, almost obsessiveness that you have to have to see that through is kind of astonishing, really. But I think that, you know, my optimistic tone really comes from the fact that, again, as I mentioned, built many, many models for a variety of clinical applications. And, you know, it was always, when we took something on, it was always this, I had to get mentally prepared for what was likely to be an eight to 12 month development cycle, gathering the data, building the model, testing it, probably retuning it, et cetera. And here we find ourselves in an environment where that development cycle has been shrunk by massive orders of magnitude, both from the coding side, certainly, right? Because we have these co-pilots and these new models can help us there, but also on just a lot of the other data analysis tasks. But then finally, if I can potentially leverage a model that's already been developed with a series of prompts, 
maybe some retrieval augmented generation techniques and I can achieve a task, well, that maybe is a few weeks, maybe even less. And so to me, what that does is two things. One is it certainly reduces that level of pain and suffering and obsession you need to have and maybe even the activation energy just to say, okay, if I start down this path to build this thing or uh, tackle this use case, I need to be in it for the long haul. This is a big commitment. Now it's like, well, I can actually try several things and make some determinations about ROI, et cetera, more quickly. The second thing is it actually lowers the barrier to entry for others who may not have a background in computer science or feel like they have a, a grad student team at Stanford in order to tackle something and actually allows other entrants. So I'm seeing more and more clinicians than ever before learning the concepts and principles of the technology and then bringing it over to generative AI capabilities and saying, well, actually, in my field, in this thing, this is one pain point that I have that really drives me crazy. And only domain experts know those things, right? There are the, <laughs> they, you can, they can give you a list of the things that they love to tackle. And so I'm just so excited that Microsoft and others have really said, listen, we want to empower anyone to be able to leverage what is essentially the most powerful technology, at least in AI we've seen in a generation, to tackle the things that they can accomplish that otherwise would have been a huge undertaking, potentially requiring, again, months of effort, millions of dollars of development time. And so for me, I'm really just betting on the, the ecosystem to take these technologies and move forward. So I've, again, I've never been more optimistic. And it's not necessarily all going to come from one place, right? The idea is, can you make this democratized to the point where people are solving problems all over the place mm-hmm. in, in a safe and responsible way, I guess, is the key. You mentioned passion and dedication there, and yours is quite self-evident. And I wonder if you can share something of what your motivation or your North Star is in this respect. I mean, some people have said they got into medicine because they saw Dr. McCoy on Star Trek curing people, <laughs> and they said, I want to be like that. And without having to put a time frame on it, is there a vision you have that's of the future of medicine that's pulling you forward? Yeah, I, it's funny. I, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of an odd, you know, I have an odd background. I, you know, I was an English major. I came into medicine via a series of life events. And for me, as odd as it is to say, I looked at this, yes, I enjoy the technology. Yes, I'm, I'm obsessed with it. I spend almost all my waking hours thinking about it and, and working with it. But yeah, the North Star for me since day one has really said, how can we make sure every person on the planet, regardless of income or background or location, can have the access to the best possible healthcare? And that has really underwritten a lot of what we did. In fact, a lot of stuff that we had done early was chiefly for open science, but then also to develop and deploy that in the most democratizable way possible. And it, it, again, that's, there's plenty of failure along the way. So the only thing that's going to keep someone crazy enough like me to, to continue to, to beat away at it, I think, is just remembering that inspiration for starting this journey, you know, well over 25 years ago. And I haven't lost my passion for that. Well, if there are people listening to this who are qualified to uh, help join you on that journey and be of some material assistance to you or other places in the field, what do you want to tell them about how to get into that? Yeah, I, a lot of folks ask this all the time. Again, my journey has been very opportunistic, I think, and lucky, I would say, in terms of how I've been able to continue to to do things that I love to do. But, you know, as I was referring to earlier, I think there's never been a better time, I mean, ever, in terms of being able to leverage and use some of the most powerful technologies to address things that you feel are important to tackle. And so getting experience, getting hands-on experience, now I'm speaking mainly to those in the medical side of the world, 
don't let the techie or the AI kind of labels fool you into thinking that you need to have additional you know, expertise or training. This is something that you can get your hands dirty with. Start spending some time. The democratization of the the education folks like Andrew Ang, many other platforms are out there. Jeremy Howard's another one. Getting familiar and getting comfortable with these technologies has never been easier. And often it's the, be the change you want to see in the world. That, that's, that's, it's time. It's time to take advantage of that. Well, thank you. And uh, where should people go to find out more about what you and Nuance are doing? We have uh, websites, follow us on Twitter. I, I, you know, I, I'm relatively active, although not as much as I used to be. And then obviously LinkedIn's another place where we try to keep folks as up to date as possible on things that we're doing, partners we're working with, and obviously the newest applications and how they're making a difference. Well, Matt Lundgren, thank you so much for coming on AI and You. It's been a real pleasure. It's been a pleasure speaking with you, Peter. Appreciate the time. That's the end of the interview. I'm excited to think about what multimodal large language models might mean for a field like medical imaging where those extra modes are so important. If you want a tongue twister, try saying multimodal large language models in medical imaging a few times quickly. And Matt also got me thinking about how important user interface design, UI, and user experience, that's UX, are in these very complex specialized applications and how AI might help simplify them and reduce training time, for one. In today's news, ripped from the headlines about AI, MIT has developed a novel type of deep learning architecture called liquid neural networks. Quote, the inspiration for liquid neural networks was thinking about the existing approaches to machine learning and considering how they fit with the kind of safety-critical systems that robots and edge devices offer. End quote. Daniela Roost, the director of the Computer Science and Artificial Intelligence Lab, CSAIL, told VentureBeat, begin quote, on a robot, you cannot really run a large language model because there isn't really the computation power and storage space for that, end quote. The explanation of these networks is pretty abstruse, so I'll just say that they are significantly different from traditional models, they use less power during training, and they are a lot smaller. For example, a classic deep neural network requires around 100,000 artificial neurons and half a million parameters to perform a task such as keeping a car in its lane. In contrast, Roos and her colleagues were able to train an LNN to accomplish the same task with just 19 neurons, not a typo, 19 neurons, which means they can extract the entire decision tree from the network. That's just amazing. Next week, we will have a special episode, just me and my thoughts on the AI Safety Summit, taking place at Bletchley Park, November 1st and 2nd. That's next week on AI and You. Until then, remember, no matter how much computers learn how to do, it's how we come together as humans that matters. That's all for this episode of AI and You. Please leave a rating and comment and share with your friends. Get the book Artificial Intelligence and You and see more videos and articles at AIandYou.net. That's A-I-A-N-D-Y-O-U.net, where you can also send us your questions. Thank you for listening.